Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right. Ladies, gentlemen, all 10 of you, welcome to Value After Hours. This is your one of your hosts, Bill Brewster, with my co-host Toby Carlisle and Jake Taylor. Jake, what are you going to be talking about this week? I'm going to be discussing the prudential algebra of Ben Franklin that might help you improve your investment process. Toby, what are you going to talk about? Uh, the first decade of the 2000s was expensive names uh, with surging fundamentals and flat stock prices where value did very well. Second decade was the reverse. Uh, surging fundamentals led to surging stock prices and value stayed flat. I'm wondering what happens over the next decade. All right, and I'll be talking about the joy of owning financials and travel companies right now. It's the best. Right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Yeah, so this week we're going to do a big therapy session uh, because markets are off 12, they're off 15 and a half at one stage, which was getting pretty gnarly. We still haven't gone, we, we've gone through 2016, we're a bigger drawdown than 2016 at the bottom, not as big a drawdown as 2018 yet, which was 20% like a golf ball off a concrete path and back to new all-time highs. I think we're, yesterday you we saw... bitterly. <laughs> Well, yeah, I wasn't long. I mean, I was long, but I wasn't. I had a whole whole lot of shorts that got shredded in that. And then uh, yesterday we had that monster 5% rip, uh, which I think is probably arguably still kind of bear market type behavior. You get the big, big volatility rips and moves. But what's, uh, what's happening, Bill? What are you seeing? I, I I didn't see a five percent rip yesterday. I guess that's because I was looking at my own portfolio. Um, it happened all the way at the end of the day. It was at the close. It was looking shaky for a little while. Oh, that's weird. Because I looked at five p.m. and I still didn't see it. I guess maybe there was a glitch on my screen. Were you at least green yesterday? Uh, yeah, I think I was. That's how you know you're a prepper if you're red yesterday. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I mean, look. I guess that so I, I have been uh, I have talked about airlines. I don't really want to go down as the airline guy. That's not like the the bet that I'm trying to make. Um, but you know I have been buying into this uh, this weakness a little bit, um, as I have learned many times in life. Bite Buffett beat me a little bit on the price, and you know quite Did a bit he really? on his cost base. Oh yeah, I mean he you know he well he also yesterday bought and now people feel like it's okay to buy delta let's see how they feel in four days i mean i tweeted out after the investor day like it had a good day i said welcome to the pain train like these things are not easy to own i mean fundamentally there i do not expect to be with the market right now because i am deploying some capital into travel related entities so the notion that i would keep up right now is sort of silly um, when you say travel related, what, what what's your definition of travel airlines? So Delta is one. What else? Yeah, I mean, I, I own Ryanair. 
some um, booking holdings is mm-hmm. one that I've been buying. So, OTAs. Yeah. Um, one OTA. What's an OTA? Uh, online. Online. Traffic. Um, and, but like, I don't like Expedia or TripAdvisor. Like I like booking. Um, but, um, and then like, I've been looking at Eldorado, uh, a little bit ERI. I haven't done anything with that, but I hear that they're great operators. Uh, I've heard that from a couple people. So it's something that I have on my radar. So like my thesis is this is where the pain is. Something that is difficult about owning pain when pain occurs is like you if you're long airlines, in my opinion, you need to own this to deserve the return. And if you're gonna get scared at this, you're not owed the return that the business is gonna deliver. Because that's I mean, by definition. Now the other side of that is I'm seeing how people are reacting to the coronavirus and I what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to offend anyone and I'll probably piss off everyone. But, you know, like I'm looking at the, the South Korean data because people say it's the most reliable. And it appears to me uh, to be sort of flu-like and a 0.6% death rate doesn't seem to be like the craziest thing in the world. But I went to Target the other day. There is no toilet paper. There is no Advil. There is no nothing. Uh, and I mean, like you look at these pictures of airports, things have just stopped. Conferences are getting canceled. And I just think of the knock on effects of what that means. I I mean, you know, McCormick place is going to sit vacant for a lot longer than it ever had. Well, has in recent history, uh, down here. I mean, you got restaurants, hotel rooms, cab drivers, like we're about to incur a lot of economic pain running from something that I'm not sure uh, we need to run from, but I, you know, I'd say that as somebody that's uninformed, but anyway, that's, what's going on in my life. Are you sure that wasn't a Sears that you went into and not a target? <laughs> Dude, it was crazy. It was really nuts. I mean, I had a woman in front of me. I think she's trying to wholesale toilet paper. Like lady, I don't know how much, how long do you think you're going to be locked down and how much do you shit? Like, I mean, is toilet paper on top of your priority list when you're, when you're prepping? It is on her. It's huge, yeah. It, yeah. If you had the flu. Yeah, but. And I want the right kind. <laughs> I do want the right kind. I want it. I've never had the flu. Uh, no. Yeah. I was sent to get like a specific type, you know, and then <laughs> I I brought back not that type. Oh, first and of I all, got, problems here. Well, and I she was like, why why didn't you get the type? I said, look at this picture. There was none. Everyone likes your toilet paper. You got that scratchy ass one ply like no, part, particle got, board. I got two ply. I'm not an amateur. So, anyway. so here's the question: What's the impact to the economy? This, this, whatever happens. This is the. This is the. I think that this is pretty. Putting aside all of the deaths, like in the quiet words of Bill Bird, two percent of you people have got to go. So I think that that's what we can deduce from everybody's take on this. There's a lot of people that's gonna gonna die. Uh, basically, we hope that it's not us. And it's going to be, you know, stimulative for the economy is what I can take from most economists at this point. So all of this buying is going to front end load Q1. And then, uh, well, yeah, so broken window <laughs> logic there. I can't. Yeah. So, so my, my real my real thoughts are I think that uh, Emmanuel Derman had a great, great tweet today where he said something like, 
worry about the people first and the economy will sort itself out. And I do think that that's the right approach. Yeah, for sure. When the WHO is commenting on the market, I don't really want their take on the stock market. I want them to fixing the problem. But I, 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 that whatever happens, it's not going to turn up until we report. in the, the Q1 reporting doesn't come out until Q2. Q1's almost over. So the real impact, I think, is in Q2, which doesn't come out until midway through Q3. So I think this is something that's with us uh, rolling all year long in a oh, very 100%. expensive market where the the Fed's already cut 50 bips emergency today. So I didn't know that the Fed had the cure for the Wu flu. And so the market puked to hear that they do. And the market puked the Fed cut, right? So, yeah. I mean, to your point, I, I thought we were dealing with a virus situation. Maybe the tax cuts will help the virus and not the Fed cut. Well, um, the WHO is watching the stock market and uh, the Fed's got the fix for the, uh, for the Wu flu. So... Maybe we need to I mean, switch look, those organizations around. I want to be really careful so that people don't think we're like taking this lightly, right? I don't want people to think that like this is just a we're just having fun with this. But the the fact is like that really I just don't know. There, it's you're running from a boogeyman in the argument because the argument is this is going to shut down everything and the world is gonna you know like needs to come to a stop so we can prevent this disease. But the only data that I've seen show that, like, it really isn't that much worse than the flu. And I could be an ignoramus. I mean, I'm open to that possibility. But to your point, like, I, I mean, we're going to cancel conference season. Uh, we're going to cancel, like, March Madness is going to get played without people uh, the in the stands. It, well, yeah, I guess Japan came out and said they're not going to do that. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it. I don't know. Is everything going to come to a halt? I have no idea. I don't think that you can be an equity investor and tr and puke out this fear and then try to buy back when the fear recedes and expect that you're going to like earn the return that equities deliver. That fundamentally, I think, is a losing strategy. But I I underestimated people's reaction to this news. I mean, this really is one of the ultimate kind of tests of what is your time horizon, right? Because yeah. there are probably tape bombs coming for you in everything that you own and it and the pain is probably coming but if you're more than a five to ten year investor then it's probably not the end of the world but if you're shorter term than that like there is probably definitely quotational pain coming your way and if you know it's coming do you sell now i don't know this is totally like this gets back to like what's your philosophy as an investor this is like you know principles are easy to have when times are good it's when they're tough that they matter right yeah that's right. Like yeah, uh, John right. Maynard Keynes, I update my my view as more information comes in. I don't, I don't, I don't mean anybody to interpret what I'm doing as taking this lightly. I think the whole situation is completely ridiculous. I think it could be an incredibly lethal virus, but I think that it's ridiculous the way every the Fed responds to it, the WHO responds to it, the government responds to it. I don't think that any of it helps any of us at all. I think you basically you're on your own. So wash your hands. And I, pardon me if I don't get a little bit like less trusting if everyone's looking at the stock market. Like, <laughs> let me do that. You guys worry about the health, right? Like, jeez, ah, what is going on here? So, I don't know. It's crazy. I mean, I don't know if you saw Schwab, but after that cut, they were off 8%. All the banks got hammered. Berkshire got hammered. I mean, at some point, like, what the? what are we doing to our financial system here?
And and who are we doing it for? And what the hell is basically what I can sum up the the cuts. We're doing it for Robin the Hood. Breaks. The Robin Hood traders who can't access their account. Yeah, well, YOLO to them. In memoriam, Vale. Yeah, and I, look, I'm not trying to be somebody that's like bitching. I mean, I, I'm like I'm long cable. That's going to help me there and whatever. But because uh, it, it <laughs> everybody's going to be at home watching TV. Well, no, they're also levered now. You can do, you know, if rates keep going down, mm. uh, you know, you just roll your debt. And, but I, I just don't understand what we're all trying to accomplish here. And what, what does and, it what does it mean that there's a rate cut? 50 bips, pretty material given where we are. And the market pukes pretty seriously. What's that in- indicate? I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, I, I think that if you want to put your tinfoil hat on, you say that yeah, the market's do that. lost. Yeah, like, like the market's lost faith in the Fed. It's uh, a disaster for them if that's the case. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it's a... This is what the Austrian school has been waiting and waiting and waiting for for years, right? Every Austrian uh, right now. What do you yeah. think? What do you think about Powell coughing during the presser? Was that just a uh, was that like three D chess to 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 throw everybody off the scent? I don't know. Oh, God, that Jim Grant spraying the champagne right now. No, I shouldn't say that, Jim. I'm sorry. I know you listen. One of the ten. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I I can't. Everyone is worried. The thing that is confounding to me, and I guess when the tenure goes down like this, you got to keep the curve somewhat upslope to the extent you can. But this is this is a demand shock, like, and it's it's not a demand shock because there's not enough credit. This is a people's willingness to buy issue, and like tax cuts don't fix that, rate cuts don't fix that shit. Instilling confidence in the people that that the virus is contained and that they're going to be okay. That's what fixes this. Uh, shutting down every event and cutting your, your, uh, the, you know, the fed cut like seems to induce panic to me more than anything. Is the sell off caused by Wu flu or do you think it's got some deeper issue? I mean, it was so damn high to begin with. Like you just, how many more, like you didn't need a whole lot to pe- for people to say like, well, is this really worth that much at this point? Uh, maybe not. I mean, <laughs> things have been going along so rosy for so long and just nothing mattered, right? It felt like nothing mattered for the last five years. That nothing and could maybe stop it. Nothing could stop it. But maybe finally this matters. Uh, and people are like, well, we had a good run. Let me... Let me take my wins before and get them out of the casino before everyone else decides they want to leave this party. Yeah, well, I I think uh, if travel is any indication, uh, time horizons are getting shorter. So if it'll be interesting to see, I read uh, that like Estee Lauder, a lot of their sales come through duty free at airports now, and like that has no traffic. Oh, yeah. uh, our Estee Lauder shareholders going to be as long duration if this thing continues for six months i don't know i mean the second and third order effects of all of this are are kind of mind-boggling really like i don't think anyone really knows what could fully happen yeah and like look this thing if it's a three-month disruption economically it doesn't matter and if we're all healthy that's great like whatever if this if people maintain this level of concern i mean they say it's going to come back next 
next uh, what fall. So if this is like a twelve month issue, I don't. I have questions on how how strong the system is with all this leverage on it. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure that it doesn't become a really big deal. Let me ask you this: as far as like you know, what is the Fed trying to accomplish other than just to kind of make everyone feel better with lower rates? But like, who in the corporate world, who governments, who in the on Earth has not been able to borrow enough money at this point? Do, is that really been the problem is they couldn't get access to liquidity like this isn't <laughs> that doesn't help anything adding more yeah i mean i think they're just trying to keep the curve somewhat flat to to upsloping and i mean the the tenure right now is just i mean what i saw today it's like almost at a percent remember the inversion like 1.08 remember the curve yeah. inverted that's yeah, predicted, well, then, preceded every single sell off in the market and then we re, and then we uh, got uninverted, which Gunlock said is what normally happens. And now we've reinverted, right, for a second. Yeah, you like Tom Cruise, the the. That's we right. Inverted. We were inverted. Keeping up, keeping up foreign relations. So you're the one giving him the bird. That's right. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, it can't be good. So I got a topic. Uh, gonna throw this out there probably going to get a lot of hate mail for this one but this is what i think so i'm going to say it anyway uh first 10 years of my career uh like roughly early 2000 to 2010 very expensive but good stocks were flat for that whole decade even though the underlying fundamentals of them were surging and so there were a lot of stuff like you know ge is an example there were a lot of companies that were uh, lionized in the late 1990s because they could beat by a penny. They were very strong. They rode it all the way up to the top and then just treaded water for a decade uh, as even though the fundamentals continue to be very strong. I've seen that analysis done of Microsoft. Microsoft, Microsoft did very well for the most definitely. part through the next decade. Last decade, um, those companies have once again, the stock prices have done very well, even though the fundamentals have been largely the same. And value stocks, which did very well in the first decade, uh, even though they're kind of junkier companies, they're not as good, fundamentals are a bit rougher, uh, have not done as well this decade. There's been that price compression in them to the point now where I, I put this out on Twitter yesterday. The Fama French, uh, Fama French, but French of Fama French has a data website where you can pull up different return streams. It's all free. You can just pull down a CSV file and uh, you can go to town on it, do whatever you want with it. So I pulled down price to cash flow because I, I think that's a pretty good proxy for the way that a lot of guys invest. I know enterprise value to cash flow would be better, but we've got to work with what we've got. It shows that the cheapest decile, the cheapest portfolio, the value portfolio is now... Uh, yielding more than its long-run average. And the only two times that that's happened in recent memory was 1998 to 2000 and 2009 at the bottom. And both times value on a very good run straight afterwards. So I just wonder if we're about to go into another decade where extremely expensive stocks are going to trade flat for a decade, even though the fundamentals continue to be quite strong. Value stocks, even though the fundamentals are pretty rough, I think they're going to have a better run on an absolute basis, but certainly on a relative basis. 
Yeah, I would love to know what the debt looks like on that that portion of the cheapest 10% versus the cheapest 10% in the other time frames where it did well. Because my, my anecdotal, just like digging through the garbage bin like I do, has been a lot more leverage that makes me uncomfortable in very, compared to previous uh, Almost certainly garbage up, right? uh, So Almost certainly up. Which makes the game a little harder. Uh, there's probably just more zeros baked into there. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's will you get the same outcome? Maybe, but it might be a little bit different this time than it was in those other times. I don't know. Yeah, those are the two thoughts that I had. How much leverage is on top of the the equity, and then how cyclical are the underlying earnings? Right. I mean, those are that's that's how you capture the both parts, right? And then the the question is, well, was it any different back then? Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I think that one way. That, yeah, well, one way that you could probably mitigate that is uh, repurchases. Now, some cynic would say, well, share repurchases are pro-cyclical, so that's not going to do anything for a cyclical business. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't know. You, you I, guys I'm, don't I'm no buy my golden age of value thesis, new golden age for value. I would love to, if that was the case. I mean, there's no... There's no one rooting for that more than the three people sitting on this podcast <laughs> right now. Yeah, However, I just am a little nervous about uh, if if actually we have apples to apples here. That's that's because you got Stockholm syndrome. You've been brutalized for a decade. Yeah. I just think fair. it's going to be really hard for for. I mean, the the game is hard. It's going to be hard in the future, and there's well, some names that. Well, what do you do then? Stretched. What do you do? Go by name by name. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, well, look, I mean, it, the way that I know how to approach it is like, I mean, I'm buying booking. Uh, it's not financial advice. Don't do it if you don't know what the hell they do. But uh, like, I think it's a they good make business. Books, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. I, I think it's a good business. I think they've demonstrated their ability to survive with Google flexing on them a little bit. You've got a secular grower uh, at an average multiple. So, you know. That's how I know how to, that's how I try to invest. It. Can I just say hats off to whichever advertising agency came up with that booking, it's booking excellent or booking great, booking.com. Yeah. That's, that's one of the best ads I've seen in a long time. Unforgettable. Hey, Bill, are you a- was pretty good too, actually. Yeah. Are you a secular grower or a secular shower? <laughs> I'm more of a, I'm more of a neither. I'm, okay. I'm more of a turtle. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> anyway <laughs> that's cold in chicago that's right that's exactly right so i got a little uh somebody shot a note on uh twitter about we were i think i said that berkshire was better than average and i might have quoted return on invested capital and i think that i do think i still think that that's the case in terms of their holdings but uh and i said i think it's better companies probably evidenced by better return on invested capital available at less than a market multiple. So that seems to me like a pretty safe bet. And someone said, that's not what you buy. What you buy is the whole thing. And if you include all of the other, uh, the float and all of the companies that they hold, you're not getting that. What, 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 you're not getting, it, it doesn't matter that the return on invested capital is better. What, what do you guys think about that? How do you value Berkshire? I try to do a sum of the parts when I do it. Um, I don't disagree that 
the return on invested capital may be better in other companies. Like it may be below average. I haven't looked where it is. Once you back out the float and the and the companies that holds, I don't think you can back out the float. I mean, I view that as like working capital for them. But dude, you have the best utility in the entire United States. Like that, sure, it's not a strong return on invested. Yeah, well, I mean, look, that's the stuff that like you make money over the really long term. That's a durable stream of cash. Like that's. And in a rate where the tenure or in a world where the tenure just went to one, like what's that worth? And when you can fund some of your CapEx with uh, some insurance float, to me, that's an above average business. Now, if the returns on invested capital are lower, I can understand why somebody may not want to pay as much as maybe I am willing to pay for the certainty of what's here today. But I, I think my return stream in Berkshire is tighter than the average company, even if the return on invested capital is somewhat less optimal, if that makes any sense. What do you mean by tighter? I don't think that you're, I don't, so there is someone out here that's going to laugh at this and be like, this guy's going to get destroyed by when Buffett dies and it's all a fraud and it's the next GE. So I apologize for being, doesn't have as much debt. That's yeah. Well, I, I, I think that there were a lot of things that happened, and I have liked that in the past, so I'm just not going to go back there. But Rest in peace, um, Jack Welsh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess that what I would say is I don't think that your downside in Berkshire is as far down as your potential downside. I think that business is very, very durable. And I'm not sure that you're entitled to, to a superior return than – the average business uh, in good times, but I definitely think you're probably a lot a lot more likely to avoid landmines in the downtimes. And over time, I think that works. It's an interesting thought experiment in that if you, let's say that you could take company A that has 40% returns on capital, but by definition almost, that is bringing in the, the competition that will make those shorter lived returns on capital. Or company B, who maybe flies under the radar a little bit with a 10% return that's not really attracting a lot of attention and doesn't then also attract competition, and you put up 10% for 30 years straight, that's going to be a bigger number than the than the high-flying 40 for even 10 years that then decays and, and is low for the remainder. So if you're on a really long-duration type of investment, there's an argument to be made that you almost want the returns on capital not to be outrageously high. You almost want them to be like stealth returns on capital. What, what level flies below the radar? That is, what's the to- what's the best you can get below the radar? Like 13 and a half, 14? Guys screening Probably right 15? wherever Berkshire is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but like you ask anybody, where do you screen 15% return on invested capital? That I want the 14.5% yeah, forever and ever. Fair. I think I think I mean a lot of yeah fifteen to twenty is probably where a lot of a lot of screening cutoffs would be be my guess. I mean, you can put uh, if you want to pick Berkshire apart, you say okay, great. So your long banks, that's fantastic in a world where rates are going down in a nonstop fashion. Uh, your long Coke, which I think is almost objectively rich here. Your long well, it's definitely not objective, but I think it's rich. Um, 
you know, Fruit of the Loom, what's that got left in it? Dairy Queen. I like, I get how people can say it's a bunch of tired brands. I think that my bet is that those people are underestimating, A, how good Buffett is at banks. Like, banks have a lower return on capital or assets than most businesses, but you've got the best bank investor in the world picking them. Uh, and two, I think culturally, like, from what I've seen from Ted and Todd, I think that the future size size may be the condition that hurts this, but I'm not very worried about them being able to, to carry the torch. Like, those guys are really good at what they do. Uh, just a segue, did you see Terminal Value, account I follow, very funny, uh, had, you know, uh, Jack Welsh passed away at 84 and uh, the street estimate was 83. <laughs> yeah, I did like that. That was a Bit funny by joke. A That's solid. That was a funny joke. Uh, I, got a, I got a mailbag comment rather than a question, but I thought it was a ripper, so uh, I want to share it. Uh, so Mark Leonard has a son. Dam- oh, yeah. Damien Leonard. And Damien Leonard got control of a company a few years ago to uh, utilize the net operating losses and invest in a tax-efficient manner. He's got this company primarily invests in publicly traded software tech names, but definitely approaches investing with a value mindset. This particular company, it's 65% a book as of uh, 9.30.19, so September last year. Half the portfolio was in cash waiting for a pullback. That's from Steve Vafia. Vafia, and the uh, the ticket is PNP.to. It's a Toronto Stock Exchange listed stock. PNP. It's called uh, Pinewood or something like that. What did you think when you looked at it? I just verified that all those numbers were true. That that what uh, what he said and seemed to be true. Um, it's very very early on in the story to to ascertain if if you know, does capital allocation skip a generation or not? We, you know, we don't know. <laughs> uh, but pine tree capital is what it's called. It, it barely trades, so just take it easy. And it's probably going to get a little rip. From, is it showing from any promise? You don't want to be the guy early. that passes up uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Well, the problem is, yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, it's we're talking like a couple thousand dollars of volume a day right now. So, I just didn't know if the business was was showing any promise. I think it's an investment company. I think they're kind of half cash looking to buy the publicly listed SaaS names. Yeah, very Buffett's early. got some uh, like nephew or something in Boston. That's I think he's doing the same thing with uh, signs, like outdoor boards. Yeah, yeah. Boston yeah. Omaha is the company. Yeah, that's right. And I'll when they to- when the article came out about them, I think it was in Wall Street Journal. Like that thing ripped. Yeah, everybody wanted to be involved. So if you want to try to play that, this pine tree might be a might be a Canadian version of that, but that's it's not really the game that I, I, <laughs> I, don't, like... I don't have a holding. I'm not I'm not talking my book. So uh, if it if it spikes, it's not it's not benefiting me at least. But it was because of us. If it does, yeah, that's right. If it if it doesn't yeah. work, then that was somebody else's fault. <laughs> yeah. I love be. this kind of optionality. This is great. Steve could, uh, yeah, he could be pumping it on Twitter. So if it goes down, this is what it's like to be a newsletter writer. You just get to talk. Can you front run then... as a newsletter writer? I don't think that's right. I, I think if you disclose, you just got to be. I, in my opinion, you got to be honest with everybody. You can't. 
can't tell can't pump a name and own it and not tell people that's not your honor (laughs) yeah but how am i going to know what's the next amazon that you can't afford to miss out in your portfolio that's a good point and you should to be fair you should have to disclose how much weight you have in the portfolio right like you can't be pumping something and not own it for real i don't think i bought the s p 500 so technically i do own there you go yeah I own everything, and then now you can. All right, let's change gears. Or take off tinfoil hats. I got um, the tinfoil on these on. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, so, my topic was <clears throat> in your investment process, it's very easy to keep digging and digging and digging into a company, and you're adding data points. And a lot of times, I'm not sure if you're always adding actually relevant information. Um, and so one of the things that you can do then is to take a, a page out of Benjamin Franklin's book, which he called Prudential Algebra. And what he did was he'd basically make a pro and con list, and then he would assign weights to the pros and cons uh, so that it wasn't just the sheer amount of data that, or you know entries that you put in, but you had to assign some kind of a weight to them. So they they do this in advertising too where like they'll put up a really long list of features most of them may not even be relevant to you but be, the more features that you even just see the more good things that you associate with whatever that is uh and so our brains are wired to take the number of entries often and not necessarily the weight so sometimes i think we I, we give ourselves uh false confidence by the amount of research that we do uh and we add to our confidence at a faster clip than we add to our understanding so another way to do that actually is, uh, and this is taking a page out of computer science, it's called regularization. And what happens if you have a model, uh, and in this case, it's really your mental models, uh, you, and you have a model that is like perfectly explains the previous uh, you know, data, <clears throat> you can, it's called overfitting. You can end up with it explaining perfectly in the back, but then nothing going forward because it's too fine-tuned for the past data. Well, one way of, of regularizing that is to, you just take like your top five most salient pros and cons and look at those and weigh those against each other rather than trying to have, I've got you know a list of a thousand things I like about it and 200 that I don't. Well, Maybe those, there's a couple in that 200 who are, that are actual deal breakers, but because the numbers don't match up, uh, our brains are not really wired to handle that very well. So that's a, a, little, a little thing that I've been working on adding to my investment process to, to try to control some of the biases that I know exist. Yeah, I like that. There's, there's two um, papers on it. One looks at college students handicapping college football mm-hmm. and another one, same theme, uh, professional horse race handicappers handicapping horse races and they give them say there's 50 data points they divide them into 10 groups of five data points and they give each of the college students or the handicappers all of the information eventually but they get some information first you know you randomize which group of five data points you get so by the end of it you, everybody gets the same but at the start you get wildly different Amounts And what they find is that people anchor on to their first decision. So the first five data points become the most important data points that you get. And then you include or discard each data point that you receive after that 
based on the initial assessment that you make. So you have to be very careful with that initial assessment. So I think a better way of doing it is either decide on which data points are important to you and then only look at those or make your decision and then start hunting for disconfirming evidence. And so you're only now looking for things that prove the thesis wrong. But I like that Benjamin Franklin approach. That's the same kind of way of dealing with the issue. That's smart. So uh, Darwin also did this in a way where he he took um, he made a pro and con list about getting married and you know, he, he had written a bunch of things, but he actually regularized it by he kept it only to one sheet of paper. So he had to put the most salient things onto that one sheet of paper, which is, is a kind of way of, of keeping from overfitting his model. Was it getting married or getting married to a particular girl? Period. Just full getting married. Just getting married. Yeah. <laughs> and it, like if you find it and read it, it's pretty funny. Like some of the things about like, you know horribly boring conversations that you get stuck in because <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that, but I'm sure that that happens to other people. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I enjoy, my wife never listens to this. so it's Yeah, funny. I enjoy every moment. I don't know what you talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, I think, was so smart that I'm going to have to listen to this episode three times. Um, <laughs> I, I am one of the ten. Uh, yeah, I think that's um we need t-shirts that say that i am one of the 10 we would be the only people that would wear that get your merch Berkshire. merch. well it'd be yeah like well we figured out it's us gates buffett my man ian castle shout out ian castle uh Corey hofstein that's 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 pretty much all we got that and bill and why did i say bill gates and jim grant today so uh shout out to everybody um I when you were talking, it reminded me of something that uh, preferred shares on the Twitter machine had said, and he said that the best investor that he ever had known was the worst financial modeler, modeler, mm-hmm. and the uh, the thing is, the guy was just very, very good at, at drilling down to what are the two or three things that matter, and then just researching that. I've I find it. Easier said than done, obviously, right? That's probably the dumbest thing I'll ever say on this podcast. But it really is. Um, the airlines bring them up again, because why not? Uh, you know, it's interesting. In the underwriting, when you think about consolidation from from my perspective, it's like, okay, well, what happens if 09 happens again? What happens if 9-11 happens again? A pandemic that shuts down all the travel for an indi- like indefinite period of time, that's a hard thing to underwrite. There are lots of flights being canceled now. Yeah. Well, one one thing that I think will be interesting is the, the four executives, at least the big four, are going to Washington to sit with some people tomorrow. I would be shocked if some discussions about coordinated capacity reductions don't happen. It's an interesting perspective, though. Yeah, if you don't let them do it, they might need a bailout. So you got to figure out when you're going to enforce the law and when you're going to let them actually cheat a little bit. And I think this may actually be a point where you let them cheat a little bit. For the of course, you would say that being being long airlines. I'm saying it as a taxpayer, dude. I'm just teasing you. I do think it's funny that you you get these uh, things like this happen in the market, and your attitude to it 
kind of dictates the sort of investor that you are. If you look at this and you say, I need to get out of everything, then that's one attitude. And another one is this creates an opportunity to get these things pretty cheap. I think that airlines were already pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. I think that something like this, I actually haven't seen a lot. I'm sure that there's a lot of decimation of the portfolio because I have some airlines as well, have an airline at least. And I'm short some. Uh, I'm short Expedia with full disclosure, uh, not because I foresaw coronavirus, just because it's it's got its own problems. But I think that there are, um, you know, there are times like this in the market where I really don't think we've actually, even though we're down fifteen percent, we were at the absolute pinnacle. I, I think we're. I sort of still think we're in no man's land. Like we're nothing's really happened. We haven't sold off enough that I'm particularly no. excited about what's there. I don't feel like my hand has been forced to like, I got to buy no. something here. This is just too stupid cheap. Well, if you didn't like it in October, you're not going to like it now. Right. And it's I not didn't. like we've come Wait, down that much. October of what year? That's the problem for me. Yeah. Well, I looked after the big October of 2015. Yeah. Well, we were down to like January 2018 levels, right? I, I didn't think that things were like run outside with buckets in January of 2018. No. Um, mm-hmm. So... I do think that we're going to get to that point. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not predicting a crash. I'm not doing anything like that. I have been doing this for long enough to know that just whatever you say is going to be max embarrassment. So, But I think that you get to this point where, I mean, I remember this in 2008, 2009. There was this point where I just like, I just woke up one day and I, and I thought, holy cow, everything is just ridiculously cheap here. And I started buying sub-liquidation value because I thought these things could go to zero and at least you get a little bit of a bailout. Clearly, that was not going to happen and I don't think that's going to happen this time either but I do think you wake up one day if the market's down and you would be like holy cow this is as good as it gets it's time to really pin the ears back and start buying but it's not now yeah the only thing that I would push back that you said you said clearly that wasn't going to happen I don't know that it wasn't that like it was not Mm. that clear I think that is easy to say in hindsight and if people lived it and paid attention at the time I mean when you would wake up and see bank after bank after bank down you know, 10, 20%. Like, I mean, that I remember right after Lehman failed, that was crazy. And people were talking that Goldman was going to go under. If Goldman Sachs had gone under. Well, they, they got the, they, they switched over have, to right? the bank holding company. I know. To get the protection. So, I'm saying, I'm not so certain it, it was clear that, I mean. That's banks, I think, though. I don't think industrials, if you got an industrial without any debt, I don't think the industrials are going to zero. That was my sort of. That's fair. That that's was fair. my. The first time I'd seen the big crash, I didn't have any money. The second time I saw the big crash, I had some money in the market and I'd been cut to pieces. And I, I, I thought that there was a. I, I didn't know. Like, I think now in retrospect, and if we encounter that again, which I think we very well, we will at some stage. I'm not saying now, but at some stage, I don't think we're going to zero. I think we're going to things are going to get torn up. There are going to be a lot of landmines, but I don't think that there are going to be. I don't think the whole market goes to zero. I don't think that's ever happened. Even in a 29-style crash, it still functions and still goes on. Wait for that 100, uh, 100% passive, all wanting to sell at the same time. right? Isn't that's that got to create that? opportunity, though, doesn't it? It's got to create distortions that create opportunities. But what if all of the people who previously would have been buyers on the way down, that kind of buyer of last resort, have been fired? And <laughs> but I'm a, I mean, ultimately, I'm a business guy too. Like, I don't mind holding it. If the equity gets cheap enough, like, I'll buy it as a business guy. If you can lever into it, like, there's a million ways to get control of these things. Like, what you'd do that, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, for sure. 
that's like yeah is there is there enough private equity on the sidelines ready to to take take out some of these public companies that get cheap enough there'll be Probably. there'll be money around yeah you can cobble something together and get control of a little like that's you know all there are guys in the guys in the thirties and forties were doing that they were the the white sharks of Wall Street cobbled together whatever they could get get control of these things you know if it trades down cheap enough that you can get it for less than the cash that it's got in it, then that's a pretty good buying signal i, the, I whatever happens there's going to be opportunity i'm not i'm I'm not worried at all in fact, I think that I would rather see a big sell off because I think that that creates opportunities for guys like us. I don't know that it's coming. I just don't, I, I don't, don't know, know that I think things are that rich. I because think things I just, are that rich. I, oh, that's the richness that I don't feel, yeah. I don't feel like I'm going on on a limb to say it's rich right now, but. Where else are you going to go? <laughs> I mean, the tenure, the tenure is touching one or, or approaching. I mean, it, I think it was 108. Like, <laughs> where are you going to put your money? <laughs> That was the same thing everyone told me in 2004. Sorry, about, we I, you, I get it. I get it. I got to buy a house now. Otherwise, you'll never be able to buy it. There's no, there is no alternative to this. You have to buy a house now. Look, I get it. I'm just saying, I, I think that the desire to push people out on the risk, spectru- risk spectrum has been an effective policy decision. And the Fed loves to take people up the risk curve. Oh, it's the best, right? And I, I think they've. Done, it's hard to argue they haven't done it. I, I put out a little tweet this morning, and I was just because I was annoyed about this rate cut. But I, I said something to the lines of like, you know, old elderly people are the most susceptible to this coronavirus, and yet also elderly people who are can't get any yield now because the Fed is is lowering the rates, and also by the way, like pushing them out on a risk curve. Oh, and uh, but playing with the potential of like lighting this whole thing on fire in an inflation and killing them from a fixed income standpoint. <laughs> it's like you were, are, who are we helping or hurting here? Like, what's the goal? I'm not saying that's a false equivalency, but there was another one too, which is like, if you think that the Fed shouldn't intervene, you probably also think that the CDC shouldn't intervene. Mm. Yeah, that feels a little bit stretchy it's to a me. stretch, uh, yeah. Yeah, that feels stretchy. All right, guys. Be nice. It'd be nice if we could get some like coordinated fiscal policy that actually made some sense. Like, I don't know, say an infrastructure bill. But right now it seems like people wouldn't go outside to build a road. (laughs) I mean, maybe that's an overstatement. That is how some of the sentiment around this coronavirus thing feels like if if you uh, advocate going into public, you're endangering the species. I'm, I'm not there. I don't. I don't want people to die. That's not who I am. I just don't want us to shut down out of fear. That's fair. That's a cheery thought to to uh, to end the whole thing on. I think that's an uplifting note. Uh, uh, no that, mailbag. <laughs> we'll get think, money next week. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the the time between when we recorded this and when it comes out. Cause I feel like history is kind of moving a little faster right now than it has in recently. Yeah. I'll watch his bottom. There is a, I hope it is. That'd be awesome. It's, I we're hope having this a, thing goes away. Sometimes nothing happens in decades and then decades happen in days. That's what we're, we're in that kind of environment now. Yeah. But that's all we got time for. Uh, not a big <laughs> mailbag this week. Uh, see you all next week. See you next week.
Podcast.